0: I wonder how you think about your hometown, how you would describe your hometown. (coughs) For a couple of you, that would be describing Remsen, but not for most of us. Was your hometown a place filled with warmth and love, community, spirit, or maybe it was more individualistic, where people just did their own thing and tried to leave everybody else alone, hoping that they themselves would be left alone? Some of those differences are just regional. Sometimes they're the differences in population density, life in a city obviously is different than a small town, is different than a really small town or rural area. But one common theme, especially in small towns, is that there is a sense of knowing everyone from your place. And that, as in a small town, can be literally a lot more true. If there's fewer people to know, it's a lot easier to know all of them or most of them. And that that can be one of the benefits of living in a in a small place like Remsen. After a while, you feel like this is a place where you know where you know people and they know you. It, and feeling known, feeling that sense of community, is an important part of human life. But the downside of that, one of the downsides of that, is that it's really easy to be pigeonholed. Once people feel like they know who you are, then that's just who you always are to them. So you get in your head that this is mary the daughter of bill and angela and what you really need to know about her is she's really into horses now forget the fact that mary is in her 40s and she hasn't ridden a horse since she was in high school but this fact that she's in her 40s and you still know her by who her parents are and what she did a quarter century ago like that's very small town right this issue of pigeonholing someone mentally and then not being able to assess the reality of who they now are, being able to see what's right in front of your eyes because of your preconceptions from the past. That's exactly what we see in this text here in Mark chapter 6. Jesus, Jesus had small town problems too. Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 says, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So last week, we looked at Jesus performing two miracles in the city of Capernaum, healing the woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years, and then raising the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And in that text, we saw Jesus' compassion. We saw the contagiousness and the conquering power of his holiness But now in chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples, they leave Capernaum, where they had kind of made a a ministry headquarters. They leave there and head for Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, which is about 20 miles to the southwest. We don't know how long it took them to get there. You could make that in one good, hard day. Maybe they took a couple of days and ministered along the way. We don't know. But they head for Jesus' hometown. And when they come there, on the Sabbath day, Jesus enters the synagogue. And the synagogue was set up such that any they had the rabbis often who were present in a place a small town like nazareth probably didn't have their own rabbi but there would be traveling rabbis who would come and teach and then if if there were no rabbi there just really any man who was part of the synagogue acknowledged as part of the synagogue could stand up and and teach from whatever the scroll reading was that day and jesus is coming back to his hometown people would know who he was and he goes into the synagogue and he starts to teach And unlike other places in the Gospels, it's not what Jesus is teaching, at least at first, that seems to offend people. They're amazed by his teaching. They call it wisdom. They're also aware of and apparently believe in the reality of the miracles that he's performed in other places. They're astonished by his works of power, the miraculous ministry they've heard about. Their question is not, how can you say something like that? Their question is, how can you say something like that? Their their question is about Jesus himself, not about what he's saying. How do these people know Jesus in Nazareth? They don't know him as a rabbi. They, in in the way that Jewish boys would be trained, you would either go in the apprenticeship route, you followed the family business, or if you were going to train to be a rabbi, you went to that. That was the track of your training. It's kind of like. Uh, in England, in the middle part of the 20th century and earlier, like you, you chose which direction you were going. When you were like 12 or 13, you're either on the academic track or you're on the blue collar worker track. And when you were young, you got set on that direction. And that's, that's the way, that's hard for us to understand as Americans, but that's how societies across the world have often done things. And so these guys know Jesus as the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? They identified Jesus, first of all, by the trade, which he had probably participated in for close to two decades. He would have done his apprenticeship under Joseph while he was still young. And then he would have continued to learn that trade until the time, by the time he was an adult, he would have been a master of his craft. Uh, we Most of our English translations say, carpenter, but that Greek word is actually more flexible. It covers not just carpenters, but also stonemasons. Really, anyone who worked with their hands, Jesus was probably like an all-around handyman. In a small town like Nazareth, he was probably the guy who got called when you had any kind, like, we need to build a little room onto our house, or we need this door fixed, or we need some stonework out on, on the side of the building. Jesus could do all of those things. He's also identified by his family connections. And it's interesting here how he is referred to. He's not called the son of Joseph. Now, normally, a Jewish man would have been identified by his father, even if his father was dead. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that Joseph was dead by this point because we don't see him in the Gospels after the birth narratives of Jesus and Jesus going to the temple when he was 12. So it's very possible that Joseph was dead. But even if he was, that's still how Jesus would have been known normally. It would be Jesus, the son of Joseph. Probably what's going on here in this typical small town of Nazareth is that people are bringing back up the suspicion that Mary had been unfaithful, and and that's how Jesus came to be born before they actually got married. It seems like they're saying something to the effect of, how could someone who isn't even a legitimate child teach like this in our synagogue? We know who he is. And then there's the references to brothers and sisters, which makes clear that that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had a bunch of children after Jesus was born. I think we all know how that happens. (laughs) It's, It's as if they're saying, look, this guy's from a normal family. Maybe a little bit worse than normal family. How how can Jesus think he's anything special? I mean, forget forget what he's teaching and all the wisdom in it. Forget the power that he has. How can he how, how dare he think he's better than us? You you might be familiar with the concept. If you're not, you're you're familiar with the idea even if not the term of brain drain in rural areas where kids grow up and they go to get an education and then they never bring those <laughs> the things they learn back to hometown they go and they stay in the bigger <laughs> cities or, or whatever um, it's I mean statistically it, it is a problem in, in rural areas where it, you just don't get a lot you don't get the inflow of those skills and education the way that you get the outflow of them but it's interesting very often when people either that stay away or even if they do come back, There's often not a a gratitude that they've done well or that they've pursued excellence in something. Oftentimes there's a resentment. I saw this a lot growing up. I grew up in an area where the level of average education was much lower, and there was a deep resentment for people who had tried to better themselves or achieve something. And it seems, again, like... That's kind of what's happening here in Nazareth. Like, who do you really think you are, Jesus? We know you. We know your family. What what business do you have coming and talking as if you're some big shot rabbi? So verse 3 ends, they took offense at him. They were offended by Jesus. That's an interesting uh, phrase there, took offense. It's a verb form of the Greek word scandalon. And that term is also used of a building stone that was rejected. So when you were a stonemason like Jesus would have been, if you were laying the foundation for a building, you would be pretty choosy about the stones that you started with, especially your cornerstone that you started and, and set the whole line with. But really your whole foundation, you would have been choosy. You don't want to put weaker stones on the bottom. You don't want to put anything that's cracked or misshapen. You want to get that foundation correct. And so you would sometimes discard stones that were brought to you. And that's the same word here used, on, took offense at, rejected. If that idea rings any bells for you in the Bible, it's because in Psalm 118, it says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that is one of the favorite passages of New Testament writers when they speak about Jesus. Jesus himself uses it. Later on in Mark, chap- Mark chapter 12, Jesus is telling the parable of the wicked tenants. He's telling a parable against the religious leaders. And he quotes this verse and the verse that follows it, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. I'm going to read it from Mark chapter 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Apostle Peter takes up that same text in 1 Peter 2 when he's describing the foundation of the church. He says that Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected by men. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14. That God will become a sanctuary. A sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. R.C. Sproul put it this way, quoting Isaiah 53.3, he says he was despised and rejected by men. Quote, he was rejected by his own people, by his family, by the townsmen, by the nation of Israel. The one whom God appointed to be the cornerstone of his building was considered flawed and repulsive by his contemporaries. End quote. Especially the contemporaries of his own hometown. They they just didn't want to have anything to do with this hometown boy who starts talking as if he's got something special to say from God. Starts showing off all kinds of miraculous power. Jesus then speaks words which, when paired with others that Mark doesn't record for us, nearly get him killed. We see in in Luke (coughs) chapter 4, this same series of events, the same incident here, in nazareth luke tells us that the crowd is going to get so angry with jesus that they drive him out to a cliff and they are going to try to throw him off the cliff they are furious with jesus and jesus is able to escape but mark doesn't focus on the anger of the mob rather he focuses on their unbelief jesus states in verse four that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. These people thought they knew Jesus, and so they could not accept the idea of this carpenter being more than just a carpenter. And it makes me think of so many today who think they know who Jesus is. Maybe they are part of a a religion that says Jesus was a great man, but he wasn't God, or he was God, but he was less God than God the Father, rather than being one with the Father. They think they know Jesus, but they won't take him for who he says he is. The devastating result of this for the the people in Nazareth is that they missed out on Jesus's power. Even though he was there in their midst, they saw him face to face. They missed out on actually experiencing him. Verses 5 and the first part of verse 6. And he could do no mighty work there except he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. That's an interesting phrase. That's probably what I spent as much time as anything thinking about this week, was that phrase there in verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. Now, we've seen Jesus do all kinds of miraculous things in this gospel already, right? He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. We're going to see him do more than that. Multiply bread and loaves. He's calm the storm. Jesus has all kinds of power. Did he just all of a sudden lose it when he went home? No. I think we need to understand this phrase in light of John chapter five, verses 19 and 20, which say this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel and what Jesus is saying in John chapter 5 is that he and the father are united their will is one the father is not going to do anything or the son's not going to do anything that the father does not will and desire for him to do There, I mean, if you get down in the weeds of theology what well, this is part of what we call the hypostatic union, this union of Christ having a a true divine nature and a true human nature. And there's times when the humanity of Jesus does not want something. So like before the cross, he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But, But his divine will is perfectly one and united with the Father and his human will is submitted to that. And so Jesus is never going to do something that is apart from the Father's plan. And here in Mark's gospel, what we see is that these people may well demand a sign, like you did all those miracles out there, Jesus. Well, come on, let's do them here. But they aren't believing in him as who he says he is, and they're not going to receive God's gifts apart from faith. The, the will of God is to only give those good gifts of salvation and mercy to those who trust in Christ. So Jesus had the power to save. He had the power to do miracles here. But they were not going to receive them by faith, and God won't give them apart from faith. And so he has power in in the abstract sense of having power, yes, but they weren't going to receive the benefits of his power apart from faith. He could do no mighty works there because they did not believe. There were a few who believed, and they received healing. And I think that should be encouraging to us. There are times when we feel like we're alone in our belief. We're alone in our family, or we're alone in the group of friends that we're hanging out with, or we can feel like the the culture is moving totally in the other direction. That may be true. And, And if that's the case, then God's judgment will come to those who do not believe, right? But you can still stand in faith and receive God's mercy. These few in Nazareth were different than everybody else, not because they were better, but because they chose to trust Jesus and they received his good gifts. That wasn't the case for most, though. In Nazareth, most remained skeptical and brought on themselves the same kind of judgment that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 12, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 39, he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the people of Nazareth brought judgment on themselves by rejecting the cornerstone, by rejecting their hometown son. And so he moved on. That's what we see in the second half of verse 6 and following. And he went about among the villages teaching. He left Nazareth and went out around the surrounding villages. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. As we look at this portion of the text, I want to contend that the main through line connecting these verses, two verses, one through six, is still the importance of faith. And we see that in two respects, the faith of the disciples and the faith of the crowds. Jesus' instructions for the disciples really are stunning when you look at them. First of all, and... Let me back up. It's probably also terrifying for them, what he's about to, to send them out to do. He, he gives them authority over unclean spirits. And that is a shocking thing to do as we've been reading Mark's Gospel. To this point, Jesus has been showing his divine power over and over in Mark's Gospel by showing that he has power over these spirits, right? He's from chapter 1 all the way through to what we saw in the beginning of chapter 5. He's casting out demons and showing his divine power in doing so and nowhere in scripture are we given the idea that we should think that humans have that power in any normal circumstance in fact Jesus brother Jude Judas he was called here in in chapter 6 would later write of the folly of those who in the name of Christ think that they're going to cast out demons or confront the devil like oh we're going to speak ill of those things and Judas Jude says you guys don't even know what you're talking about. When the archangel Michael confronted Satan, he did not utter, and this is, these are Jude's words, a blasphemous judgment. He did not blaspheme Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And if the archangel Michael <laughs> has to say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, rather than confronting him directly, probably a good indication that that should be our <laughs> tactic as well. We shouldn't be trying to go face to face with a demon. But here, the disciples receive a delegated power from Jesus to cast out demons. As Jesus' personal eyewitness representatives, he wanted his power to be clearly demonstrated through them. He sent them out, and then he sends them out without provisions. Again, this is not normally how God expects us to work. Uh, Jesus will commend counting the cost before you build a tower. Looking at the strength of your army before you go out to war. Counting the cost before you follow him. The Proverbs tell us to go to the ant you sluggard. Look at how, how the ant diligently stores up for winter. Like being ready, being having a plan. God's all about that in scripture. Like plan. But not here. Jesus told them to go two by two with literally nothing but the sandals on their feet and the shirt on their back. Just go, guys, and start going from town to town. And as they went, Jesus told them to stay in the home of whoever accepted them. And if they weren't accepted, to just shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next place. And I would, again, like, this is not a normal form of ministry. I think there's a place for itinerant ministry where you travel and, you know, (laughs) the minister, if he's accepted and is supported, stays there until he leaves and moves someplace else. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's a model for most people to follow, uh, to jump to just like a practical side. Like, that's the opposite of how a local church functions, right? Remsen Bible Fellowship doesn't exist to roll in, preach the gospel, hope it's received, and otherwise we're just out of here tomorrow. That That's not how we function, right? We're here for the long haul, seeking to build roots deep into Christ that we might bear fruit in this place, over the course of years and decades. To use a military analogy, like we don't come in and carpet bomb and then fly away. We start like an insurgent warfare and eventually start building a culture, right? That's that's what you're doing. <clears throat> Jeremiah 29, 11 is a lot of a lot of people love that verse that God has plans to prosper and not to harm his people, plans for a hope and a future. He's giving that to them directly after telling them you're going to be in exile for a long time so plant gardens, build houses, have families in enemy territory. that's what you're supposed to do. <clears throat> that's what the church does. We plant roots in a place that this is this world our permanent home? no but we live like it's our home because it's where God has us right now and so we serve faithfully here even when it's hard even when it feels like wow we're in exile we still plant our roots. But the point of these instructions to the disciples here is that what they're doing isn't normal. But Jesus wants to put them in a pressure cooker, as it were, so that they know they can't rely on their own resources. They can't bring their own savings account full of cash to help them through this journey. They, they would have to be dependent upon the Lord to provide for them through his people in every town that they went to. They had to be trusting that the Lord would not allow their clothes to wear out or their sandal straps to break. They they couldn't even take a bag of trail mix with them. Like they couldn't take anything. And that kind of faith is required of us today, even if the way it expresses itself is different. We will not experience the blessing of God in our lives as long as we are dependent upon our own resources to supply for our needs I think that's, it's a hang-up that causes a lot of Christians to question whether they should give financially or of their time. It prevents us from taking risks and hard conversations, either conversations with unbelieving friends and family members because we're afraid of how it'll go, or confronting uh, a, f- a friend who is a believer over sin in their lives. We're afraid to do these things because we can't control the outcome. We, we don't have faith that the Lord will provide for every need that we have. But Jesus sent these disciples out two by two to proclaim his word with their mouths and to put into action the trust in his provision which needed to rule in their hearts. That trust in his ability to provide is what needed to rule them. And the results were stunning. Verse 13 says, They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Same message that Jesus has in the first part of Mark's Gospel, 15 and 16 of chapter 1. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what they're preaching. They proclaimed that people should repent but then notice the thing that did not happen in nazareth through jesus did happen in these other towns through the disciples they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them the disciples were able to exercise the authority over demons which jesus had given and they healed many who were sick and the reference to anointing with oil there—it's a the subject of some debate over what exactly it means. I think the best explanation is uh, given by scholars who, who contend that anointing with oil was meant to be a symbolic representation of the Spirit's power. That that the oil itself wasn't wasn't like a medical treatment or wasn't doing anything, wasn't like special juice that fixed them. There's no magical power in the in the oil, but it's meant to represent that we're praying over you, we're anointing you, we're trusting the Holy Spirit's power to save you. <clears throat> so I think that's what's happening there. And as they pray for these people and as they anoint them with oil, God heals them. And it's it's stunning when you set that in contrast with Jesus is present in Nazareth and healings pretty much aren't happening other than those couple of exceptions. And the disciples sent by Jesus. Jesus is not present with them. They're out on their own. And people are getting healed left and right. What's the difference? These people did not believe. And these people did. Even though Jesus was not present. Put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. That This would have taken radical faith for the disciples in, in Jesus' power to believe that he was going to do these things through you. The We also see that those in the outlying areas had such faith in Jesus' power that they were willing to trust that Jesus could work through his spokesmen, through his emissaries, through his disciples. Those in Nazareth did not believe and did not receive Jesus' merciful work on their behalf, though he was present with them. And those who could not see Jesus, but yet believed, received his ministry through the work of the twelve. So... In that contrast, I think we we see the imperative of this text, and that is that you must believe in Jesus to receive his grace, to receive his mercy, to experience his power worked on your behalf. You personally have to trust him in his saving work on the cross, in his offer of free forgiveness for all those who place their faith in him, in his divine authority, which commands that you walk in trusting obedience today. Though you cannot see Jesus, right? We, none of us sees him physically. As you hear his word proclaimed, you are responsible to repent of your sins and trust in him as your Lord. So then, the question is, what stops you from doing that? Maybe you think you don't need him. You think you're okay without a Savior. You think you're pretty good after all. You're way better than your mom was, or your neighbor, or that guy you knew in high school who was a real jerk. But in the end, you know, that's not true. You, you may not yet be sure about Jesus, but you know there are things in yourself that are wrong, that you're broken, that you are, in a word, sinful. You're sick with no one to heal you. You are spiritually dead with no way to wake up from that death. You need a savior and Jesus is that savior. But maybe that sounds too simple. That's where a lot of people are at. Yeah, Jesus, he'll save me. I've got to do something too, right? I've had a conversation. I've had two conversations this week with with people who, I need to do something, right? I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. There's got to be more to it. You have to do something to earn what he offers. But that is exactly the same objection. It doesn't sound the same, but it's the same objection as the person who thinks they don't need a savior at all. You have to realize you don't bring anything to the table except your sin. You have nothing to offer God. You must completely despair of yourself and your own ability to earn anything before God, to earn a salvation. You have to receive what Jesus offers for what it is, a gift. And maybe you know all that, but like those people in Nazareth, it's just too familiar to you, too humdrum, too boring, too boring. Old hat, trust in Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Maybe you grew up in church and Jesus just seems as ordinary as he did to the people he grew up with. If that's your problem, then I just believe with you. Grab a different Bible translation than you're used to. Quit assuming when you start to read something like, oh, yeah, I know that and skip it. How often do you do that when you're reading? Like, "Up, oh, I know that story. Go on to something that seems newer. Read it carefully. Ask God for fresh eyes to see the things that He's saying to you. Don't Don't be so proud that you think you know Jesus well enough already. Be flattened as you read the scriptures by the reality of your own sinfulness and the overwhelming nature of God's gift to us, His grace given in Christ the one who will save any who trust in him. Friends, the the disciples went out proclaiming that people should repent, and that's our message today as well. It's the same message. And it's a message that, that each of us needs to hear to repent of our sins. Look to Christ alone for salvation. And it's the message that we've been given to take to the world. And so let our prayer be, let your prayer be, that God the Holy Spirit would be preparing the soil in your own heart, and in the hearts of those around you to receive that message with faith. Let's pray. Father God, I say these things, and I confess so often they feel old hat to me. And I can't help but think that that's my own pride forgetting how desperately in need of this salvation I am. And so we thank you, thank you for the grace to remember that we're sinners, to look with clear eyes on the reality of our own condition. That's only possible if your Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And we also thank you for the gift of faith by which we might cling to Christ, who is our only hope. And Lord, would you protect us from the dullness, from the the hard-heartedness and the stiff-necked rejection of that grace. That was seen in the people at Nazareth. And would you give us, like those people in those surrounding towns, hearts that are eager to receive your word. Lord Jesus, we do not see you, and yet we love you. And we trust you, and we thank you for what you've done for us, and what you are doing in us now, and what you will do for us in the future. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.